Luke 2, we're going to look at a message called Divine Consolation. The two main texts are going to be Luke 2 and Leviticus 12. Luke 2 and Leviticus 12. Christmas Consolation is actually the title. Christmas Consolation. I'm going to pray one more time. Father God, thank you again for the precious people that have come out tonight. Thank you for the brisk weather outside for the rain. It's a reminder of your faithfulness, Lord. Your, your word is compared to rain and snow that comes down and waters and brings growth, and it has done just that to our lives. Produces a crop, 30, 60, 100-fold, and we're just grateful, Lord, to be recipients of your grace, the power of your word. We find consolation in it. We find hope in it. We find truth. We find life. Because the word is breathed out by God and it is profitable in every area of our lives, Lord. And it will produce not only stuff for us, but it will make us more effective ambassadors for you. And it is our prayer tonight that you'll set aside this time to speak to our hearts, speak into our ears. Our ears are open to what you would say. And show us wonderful things from your word that we might take with us and use this Christmas season and beyond. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Christmas Consolation. I was talking with some folks in the office, and I threw out a title. What do you think of this title, Christmas Consolation? And uh, somebody said, Consolation makes me think of that prize that you, you get when you finish, like, third, and you win the Consolation Prize. <clears throat> it's usually like a ceramic doll or something like that. <laughs> but that's not the word Consolation here. The word consolation is actually a word that has the idea of consoling the soul. It's, it's a really special word. It's, it's a word that has the idea of comfort. It has the idea of uh, encouragement. Um, it's used, <clears throat> for example, in uh, Philippians 2.1, where it says, if there, is th if there is any consolation in Christ, this, that's the New King James, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. It's been pointed out in Philippians 2.1 that these are, uh, this is a conditional clause and it, it is not maybes, it is certainties. If there's any consolation in Christ, and there is. Any consolation of love, and there is. Christmas consolation is about consolation in Christ, not things that console our souls that we go to that are just kind of empty pillows that help us maybe sleep a little better at night. No, Christ's entry into the world is a historic event. Christ entered time and space, and he lived and died and rose from the dead in the very history in which we find ourselves embedded. So <clears throat> Christ is a reality, and when we share on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, I'm going to point out a little bit of how Luke takes us back to historical leaders of the time, in the time of Caesar Augustus and so forth, so that we can mark the time. The Bible doesn't say once upon a time this happened as if it's some pie-in-the-sky mystery tale. No, rather, it is very historic. The Apostle Paul is a historic figure who was a, uh, a leader in Judaism and discovered Jesus Christ in his own life. There's a, there's a passage I wanted to point out in 1 Corinthians 14. When you look at it, a few of the definitions, turn over to 1 Corinthians 14, of consolation, 
It's interesting because it does apply, 1 Corinthians 14, to some gifts that the Holy Spirit gives the church. And it talks about here the gift of prophecy. And to just define the word consolation, sometimes the word is paraclesis, and it has the idea of coming alongside to bring comfort. That's what the Lord does for us. That's what we should be doing for other people. We should come alongside and bring them comfort. 1 Corinthians 14, look at verse 3. It says, but one who prophesies or speaks forth the word of God, speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Edification means to build up, 1 Corinthians 14, 3. Exhortation means to try to get someone moving in the right direction. And consolation has the idea of consoling. This is what we do when we speak the word of God. The word of God is a balm. Uh, it, is, it is salve to our souls. This is the idea of what consolation is about. When we speak the truth, we speak the truth in love. We do it because we want to give people the true hope of the gospel. When you tell people, come to a Christmas Eve service or come on Christmas Day, what you are communicating to them is a hope. And that hope, Hebrews 6 says, is the anchor of our souls. Now in Luke 2, just after the birth narrative, if you turn back there, there was a man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. His name is Simeon. Simeon was actually one of the 12 sons of Jacob through Leah. If you just write in your notes, Genesis 29, 33, she named him Simeon because she was an unloved woman. And when she named him Simeon, she, it says right there in that verse, the Lord hears. The Lord heard her pain. He saw her struggle. And he, he uh, heard her cry. It's similar to the idea of when Moses is before the burning bush and God says to Moses, I have heard the cries of my people. And sometimes when we have a cry of our heart, we have a concern. It can even be during the Christmas season. We can sometimes wonder, does God hear my cry? Does he care? And he certainly does. This is from a study Bible. It says the Greek word translated comfort or consolation Betrays the Lord, uh, portrays the Lord coming close and whispering words of gentle cheer or tender counsel in a believer's ear. I think it's a beautiful thing to know that the Lord can whisper a word of encouragement when you're poured out, you know, maybe you feel like you have nothing more to give and he speaks consolation to the soul. That's the idea here. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Remember when he's in the temple area, it's been quiet for 400 years there's been no prophet speaking to israel the the jewish people are under roman occupation their nation's been taken over by rome and he was waiting for the consolation of israel i hope that you're living in that same light uh, simeon was waiting for the first coming of the messiah he may not have under fully understood the first and second coming like we do today but he was waiting for the consolation and the consolation would be found in a person See, his consolation or his Christmas consolation would be found in Christ. And we can see a little picture behind me uh, of uh, Simeon depicted there holding the Christ child and looking up to God. And you'll notice that he's depicted as a very old man because that's what he was. He had been waiting for a long time. And he had found his consolation in a baby. But the story of the Bible, of course, has very limited uh, stuff on the baby Jesus there's just a few chapters in Luke and Matthew, but the most of the focus on the Christ is when he grows up 
and what he does in that three, three and a half year ministry and how he dies for our sins. So I know the Christmas season is wonderful for a lot of us. We enjoy the lights. I do. I went outside, you know, some of our lights weren't working and I hit the, uh, you know, the little, what's the little GFI, is it GFI switch? I did it with a stick because in the past I've done it with a wet finger and it's really a bad career move. You know, guys know what I'm saying. So anyway, <clears throat> Psalm 94 verse 17 says, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have dwelt in the abode of silence. If I should say my foot has slipped, thy loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, thy consolations, plural, delight my soul. Psalm 94, 17 through 19. What Simeon was looking for was not a season, he was looking for a person. What Simeon was looking for was not a season, he was looking for a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. You see, if you want to find a full life, it's not going to be about geography, bank account, seasons, lights, Christmas trees, the proper gift, the perfect gift for that person you don't know what to buy for. No. Your consolation is going to be found in Christ. He is what makes the season beautiful. What carries us through is the comfort of Christ and the love of Christ. His love cushions the blows of life and trials. Some of you are here, and your Christmas is going to be different this year. There's, you've gone through a loss, and it's not easy. But his consolation cushion, his consolations cushion my soul. Life's trials. My soul can be refreshed by God, even in the midst of sorrows, because I know he has taken the ultimate blows for me. His love brings me consolation in whatever circumstances I face. That's what I want to give away to people. That's why I share my faith. I don't share my faith just to get people to go to a church. I share my faith to get people to go to a Savior. Amen? Amen. I share my faith so that people can find consolation in Christ because they're not going to find it. True consolation is not going to be found anywhere else. It won't be found in a bottle. It won't be found in a drug. It'll only be found in a Savior. Now here's the account. It's Luke 2. Look at verse 21. It says, When eight days were completed before his circumcision, the hymn there is Jesus, uh, Luke 2.21, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel. Just write down Luke 1.35. Uh, um, as, as the angel told Mary what his name would be, and Joseph was also told as well, the tradition within the Jewish uh, culture and faith was to name the child on the eighth day. On the eighth day was the day of circumcision. For us, the number eight is the number of what? New beginnings. That's kind of an interesting thing. And so this is what happens. It's eight days completed. Jesus is just eight days old. And uh, this is uh, the time of his circumcision. Then the name would formally be given to the child. This is how it worked back in the day. Now, both Mary and Joseph knew what his name would be, but they formally named him at that time. And his name was Jesus, a common name of the day. It's actually a, a Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. And Joshua is a very famous uh, individual in the Old Testament. His name was actually Hosea, which means salvation. And then his name got changed to Joshua by Moses, by the way. And Joshua is, was the son of Nun, N-U-N. That's the proper way to say his name, not the son of Nun, N-U-N, but Nun. It's a, it's a Hebrew letter, actually. 
But um, this is who he was. And, his, and he, was a, he was a mighty warrior. He was kind of the uh, sidekick of Moses. He was the man who believed that uh, they could conquer the promised land. Only Joshua and Caleb believed the Lord. And many young boys in Israel were named Joshua, just like a name becomes very famous in our day for whatever reason. You know, lots of times it's not for noble reasons in our day. Sometimes it can be a movie star's name or something like that. But we do know that a lot of people are walking around with Bible names. So I have just a little bit of a, uh, this is a, just a little approach for you. If you meet somebody and their name is David or Joshua or Nathan or whatever the name may be, if it's a Bible name, Ask them, hey, do you know where your name comes from? Do you know why your parents named you that? And they may or may not uh, know the origin of that name. And I've used that as a platform many times to talk to people about that biblical name. Do you know what that, like Jonathan, do you know the story of Jonathan? Man, this, he was an awesome warrior, friend of David. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a launching point to share your faith with people. For Israel, uh, you can write down Genesis 17, 14. Circumcision was a national sign. If you didn't get circumcised, you were considered a covenant breaker, Exodus 22, 48, to be cut off from your people. It was Israel's national identity. It had practical health benefits, people argue. It was a spiritual seal and symbol of the Abrahamic covenant, and it had the idea of the need of cleansing or cutting away of the flesh. It was to be passed down from generation to generation, and circumcision, like baptism, is a, or was a physical symbol of the spiritual cleansing of the heart. We're told many times in the Bible to circumcise your heart. It's not just about a ritual act. Just like there's a parallel, and you know, sometimes people, they get really concerned about um, the, the, the baptismal that's right here, okay? The baptismal is quite significant. We need to be baptized because that's what the Lord told us to do. But the water is still symbolic. We do not believe in baptismal regeneration. You say, what does that mean, Pastor Michael? That means that there are some people that believe until you get into that water, you're not regenerate. You're not born again of the Holy Spirit. Look, folks, the water don't save you. Jesus saves you. Now, you should be baptized as a Christian because Christ commanded baptism. Baptism in the early church, my understanding of church history, baptism was the main time that individuals gave testimony to their faith in Christ and to their connection to the body of Christ. So it has great significance. It becomes a symbol, and in, in some ways you may even call it a seal. But it is not salvation. Christ is salvation. In fact, Jesus' name means Yahweh is salvation. That's why they named him Jesus. And it's interesting, they gave him the name on the eighth day, and that would be the day that he was cut and bled. Kind of interesting, isn't it? He was named Yahweh is salvation, Jesus, on the day in his young life that he was cut and he bled. And he fulfilled the covenant. Now, some people ask the question, well, well, why would Jesus need to be circumcised and why would he need to be baptized? He didn't need to do it for spiritual reasons because he never sinned. He's God in human flesh. Then you say, pray tell, why? Because he was uh, fulfilling what Israel failed to do in keeping the whole law. He said to John, let this be done at the Jordan River that we may fulfill 
all righteousness. He was the perfect man. He identified with the people of Israel. His baptism would be similar to a person walking down the aisle. If Jesus Christ sat in the back row, listened to my sermon, oh, that would be scary, and then walked down the aisle and said, you know, I want to pray the sinner's prayer or something like that. This may not be the best illustration, but this is how mind-blowing it would be. That's That's why John said, you need to baptize me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. And Jesus said, let this be done that we might fulfill all righteousness. He was walking in the fallen footsteps of Israel to redeem them in every way. His sacrificial death saves, but his perfect life is also attributed to us. Amen? That's why the Bible teaches us that we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. Let this be done that we may fulfill all righteousness And his righteousness has now been imputed to you. God sees you and me tonight. This is what consoles my soul. That I am declared righteous before the Father. Because I am in the Son. That's Christmas. (laughs) That's Christmas consolation. Christ has come. And he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22 says, And when the days there... Uh, when the days for there, the New King James has, says her purification according to the law, Luke 2.22, of Moses were completed. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem, just about five, six miles from Jerusalem. And it says the days for her purification according to the law of Moses were completed. So whenever you see something like that, you have to ask the question, okay, well, so where is that found? We, we have a verse that says the law of Moses mentions the days of her purification. Then they go up to present him to the Lord. So this is where you want to turn to Leviticus chapter 12, taking scripture with scripture. Let's take a look. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You want chapter 12? This is verse one. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, when a woman gives birth and bears a male child, Leviticus 12, 2, and uh, then she shall be unclean for seven days, Leviticus 12, 2, as in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she, the mom, shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing. This applies, of course, to the people of Israel. Nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks or 14 days, as in her menstruation. And she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days. So for a male, it was 7 and 33 um, The eighth day he was circumcised. So just so you guys, uh, you hear pastors talk about when the wise men came, um, Jesus Christ was not a baby. He was in the house at the time from Matthew chapter two. And he was between 41 days old and maybe a couple years old. This is some of the evidence that we have for this reason. Um, When the wise men came, they brought gifts of what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You're going to see that uh, Joseph and Mary cannot afford a lamb to sacrifice at the temple. If they would have had the gold from the Magi, they could have easily bought a lamb. So we know that they came later. He's in a house. He's not in a stable or a cave. 
This is some of the evidence that we have for this conclusion. So it's seven days plus 33 for a male child, 14 days plus uh, 66 for a female. You might ask me, why is the time double for a female? I have no good answer for that, nor do I desire to tread on that ground. Because I desire to walk in Christmas consolation. So I will just leave that alone. <laughs> now, we will come back to Leviticus, but if you turn back to Luke 2, look at verse 23. Luke 2, 23. So we'll, we'll flip back and forth a couple times there. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb, Luke 2.23, shall be called holy to the Lord. So now another verse is quoted, and this verse in verse 23 of Luke 2 is from the book of Exodus. We'll talk about that in a second. Notice that it says every firstborn male, Jesus was the firstborn of Joseph and Mary. Before they came together, he was miraculously born he was the oldest, the firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. See the phrase, holy to the Lord? That phrase is what they put on the crown of the high priest. His crown that he wears, the golden crown, says holy to the Lord. This is Exodus 28, 36. It says, you shall also make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal, holy to the Lord. That's what the high priest wore on his headdress or crown as he ministered in the temple. Jesus Christ is what? Our ultimate high priest, and he is holy to the Lord. You ask the question, what does it mean to be holy? Holy means set apart. Ultimate holiness is found in God. It speaks of his otherness, his aboveness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. But when God sets apart things for the temple service, priests, even the Bible is called the holy scriptures, what makes it holy is not the pages or the book that it's in. It's breathed by God, set apart by God. Priests are holy because they've been set apart by God. You are holy because you have been set apart by God. Do you believe it? You say, wow, holy? Yeah, you are holy. In fact, you're called a saint in the Bible. Set apart unto God. Not because you're all that holy. Some of you may be wearing holy clothing right now. On a recent Bible Answer broadcast, Mike Massaro was wearing a holy shirt. Anyway, we won't go there, but that was even on a Facebook Friday, wasn't it, Mike? But here's where this comes from. This is Exodus 13. Let's go ahead and turn there. I think taking Scripture with Scripture is how we learn our Bible. Exodus 13, so the, the setting is Israel's leaving Egypt, the Passover, right? They're getting out of town, and uh, the Pharaoh's gonna chase them, but in between uh, the last plague and um, the actual final confrontation where God deals with Egypt, we have these words. This is Exodus 13, verse one. It says, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel. Both of man and beast, God says, Exodus 13, 2, it belongs to me. Uh, never would this be more true, these words of the firstborn, it, or we could say, he belongs to me. 
Never would it be more true than of Jesus when he was going, being presented by the, in the temple according to the law of Moses, every firstborn, God says, it or he belongs to me. Never was it more true than of Jesus because he's God's son. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so Jesus was being presented in the temple based upon these scriptures And you have a young Jewish couple and they want to be true to the word of God and especially careful with the son of God, right? And Moses said to the people, remember this day, 13.3, in which you went out from Egypt from the house of slavery for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place and nothing leavened shall be eaten. Skip down to verse 11. Now it shall come about when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite as he swore to you and to your fathers and, and gives it to you that you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. But every first offspring of a donkey, that's an unclean animal, you shall redeem with a lamb. Interesting language. The donkey gets redeemed with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck, and every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem point here is that the Lord allowed the firstborn of an unclean animal to be redeemed by a clean animal, specifically by a lamb. 1 Peter 1.18 says, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ. And it shall be, look at verse 14 of Exodus 13. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? And you shall say to him, with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go. Interesting verse, Pharaoh was stubborn. We always are arguing back and forth, who hardened whose heart? Was it Pharaoh? Was it God? Well, here you're told Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt both the firstborn of a man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. There's no human sacrifice in the Bible. That's abominable to God. The firstborn of males went through a rite of redemption. All of this is a foretaste of the gospel. They were redeemed. And later the Lord claimed the Levites for himself in exchange for the firstborn sons of the people. You can write down Numbers 3, verses 40 through 51. And so it's the firstborn that is the subject matter. Just look at a couple other verses. Turn to the book of Numbers. So you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Go to Numbers 3 for a second. Numbers chapter 3. Some of this recounts uh, the times of the Israelites as they're wandering around. And it says, again, the Lord spoke to Moses, Numbers 3, 11. Now behold, I've taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel, so the Levites shall be mine. Numbers 3, 13. For all the firstborn are mine on the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. I sanctified myself all the firstborn in Israel, from man to beast, they shall be mine, I am the Lord. And then one more, Numbers 33. Numbers 33. It says these, verse one, Numbers 33, one. These are the journeys of the sons of Israel. 
by which they came out from the land of Egypt by their armies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Numbers 33.2. Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord. These are the journeys according to their starting places. They journeyed, verse 3, from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month, on the next day after the Passover, which was Nisan 14. The sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians. The Israelites set out from Ramses on the 15th day of the first month. The day after the Passover, they marched out boldly in full view of all the Egyptians. That's the NIV. Look at verse 4. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, the Lord had also executed judgments on their gods. This is interesting, but when Israel was leaving Egypt, the Egyptians were digging graves. There was not one house where there wasn't a firstborn dead in Egypt. Egypt becomes a type of the world. It's a picture of the world. And God saved the firstborn of Israel. How did he save them? By the blood of the lamb applied to the doorpost and the lentil. But the Egyptians who were not under the blood, what did they experience? The judgment of Almighty God. And as these pictures of the firstborn and, you know, when God says, I'm going to kill the firstborn, the firstborn are mine, see some of these connections begin to emerge in your Bible. We are told in Hebrews 12, 23, if you turn back to the book of Luke, it says, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, that's the church of Jesus Christ, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. We have by one offering been perfected for all time those who are sanctified in Jesus Christ. This is the significance of Christmas consolation. Look at Luke 2 and look at verse 24. They came and it says to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, this is, I've got to take you back to Leviticus one more time. You guys okay? Everybody say yes even if you're not. <laughs> Leviticus 12, go back, look at verse 6. All right, so they offer two young pigeons. So here's what Leviticus 12 goes on to say. It says, when the days of her purification, we're, we're back now to the woman who's had the child, Leviticus 12, 6, are completed for a son or for a daughter. She shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So you have two things there, the lamb for the burnt offering, and look at verse 6, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. This is what she's supposed to do. Then he shall offer it before the Lord, the priest, and make atonement for her, the mom, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether male or female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves, this is what they did, or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Back to Luke chapter 2. Here comes Joseph and Mary with the baby Jesus, doing according to the law of Moses, and she is, now has to have an offering to make atonement for her sin. They can't afford a lamb, so they go with the What's provided for the poor, which is the two birds. But here's the beauty of this scene. She already had her lamb in her arms. 
He is the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. She may not have fully realized it at that moment. They couldn't afford it, so they did the secondary offering for the poor, but in her arms was her Lamb. She was holding in her arms the one who would cleanse Mary from her sins. And some people, when I say something like that, they go, oh, what are you talking about? I thought Mary was, was pure, born without the stain of original sin. That's not true. Mary needed a Savior. Luke 1.47, in Mary's Magnificat, she says, I rejoice in God my Savior. And this is another argument. Just think about it with me. Why does she have to go through this process of atonement being made for her unless she was a sinner? Just think about it for a second. That's why she goes there. Because she needed the cleansing for all humans. Mary was counted among the human race just like any other woman who would have a child. Now, Mary was very special. She was highly regarded among women. She was blessed, but she was still human and she still needed a savior and her lamb was in her arms. I think it's just a remarkable uh, testimony to God's goodness that he uses people like us to get his message out. Mary's ultimate purification would not come from this ceremony. Incredibly, it would come from her own son's blood. The fact that she offered this sin offering shows again her need for a savior. The Bible says the purification from sin cannot come from the blood of bulls and goats. It must come from the son of God. And that's what would happen for her and has happened for us. All of a sudden, in this particular setting, the camera pans, if you will, Luke 2, 25, and it says, Behold, take a look. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. His name means the Lord hears. This man was righteous and devout. He was looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So the camera pans now to this man named Simeon. Notice, he's a righteous man. He's devout. Are you devout? There's people that seem to be in two extremes in the Christian walk that I've experienced. You either are devout or you live in doubt. Sometimes it's how people view you. Sometimes people doubt the authenticity of your walk and they go, that person's a Christian? But there are people who are devout. What is a devout? You know, sometimes we say that person is really religious. <laughs> Have you heard that before? That means they're serious about their faith. There's not many of them out there, so you know when you meet one, that's, that's how people respond. They're really religious. And, and that's usually not spoken of in glowing terms. Have you noticed? It's not usually, that guy's really religious. Isn't that refreshing? No, it's, he's really religious. You know, like at Christmas parties, he wants to talk about Jesus. Can you believe it? Really religious. Yeah. I hope that's what they say about us. I met a guy one time outside a racquetball court. I was witnessing to him, and he goes, I'm not very religious. And I said, neither am I. And he went, what? You just told me you're a pastor. And I said, well, let me explain. There's, there's a definition of religion that's good, pure and undefiled religion. Of course, we know that. But I'm not concerned about ritual. I'm concerned about a relationship. And I went in on to talk to, to the guy about a relationship. Simeon and Anna, two people who are mentioned here in Luke's account, we'll touch on Anna at the very end. 
Two people expectantly waiting, living in the light of the promise. They were living in the light of the promise of the first coming, and you and I, you might not put yourself in this category, but you need to know that this is how you are living right now. You're living in the light of his arrival, of the second advent, amen? Are you? Are you? Are you living in the light of his return? Do you believe he's coming again? See, what made Simeon and Anna unique is they actually believed the Bible. They actually believed God's word. And so they, they wanted to see the promise come to pass. Psalm 119, verse 82 says, My eyes fail with longing for thy word while I say, When will thou comfort me? Seven times a day I praise thee because of thy righteous ordinances. Psalm 119, 64 through 66. Those who love thy law have great peace. Nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for thy salvation, O Lord, and do thy commandments. Psalm 119, 174 says, I long for thy salvation, O Lord. Thy law is my delight. Here's two people just waiting. Simeon's name, interestingly enough, can be rendered hearkening. It comes from the idea, Simeon, from Shema, to hear, to have your ear open to the Spirit. Hear, O Israel. Here's the Hebrew Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It had been revealed, verse 26, to him by the Holy Spirit. Folks, the Holy Spirit was still moving before the day of Pentecost. Acts 2 is moving in the life of Simeon here. You're going you're to notice the Spirit's mentioned several times. It had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He had a promise. He was living in the light of that promise. The Lord has heard. He's given heed to my cry. Save your people, Lord. Not just save us from Rome. Save us from ourselves. Save us from our sin. Turn us back to you. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, verse 26, or 27. That's the temple complex. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus, so here come Mary and Joseph. They're both pretty young newborn baby, right, to carry out for him the custom of the law. So he's about at least 41 days old. The phrase in the Spirit is the third mention of the Spirit to my count. And uh, here comes Simeon again. He comes in the Spirit. He's been told by the Spirit. This is how you do the Christian life, you guys. You walk by the Spirit. Some of us hear that as Christians and we're like, what does that mean? It sounds like ethereal. It sounds like, like, like different. Have you met somebody recently who's living by the Spirit? You notice a difference in them? Have you ever noticed the difference between when you are, you are living in the Spirit or by the Spirit and when you're not? Have you ever noticed it change in a matter of 10 minutes? It can, right? We're to be kept being filled with the Spirit. And Simeon is a man filled with the Spirit because his ears are open to the things of God. Look, I have found in my life that I'm filled with the Spirit when my ears are taking in the Word of God. My eyes are focused on the person of Christ. It's not, you know, maybe as mystical as we might think. It's being filled with the Spirit is obviously a supernatural work of God, but the things that the Spirit fills are the things that cause you to be filled by the Spirit. Here's simply how I look at it. The things that the Spirit fills are worship, the Word of God, good times of fellowship, 
praise, even sharing your faith where God meets you to be emboldened in a moment. I often feel this in the pulpit. I often feel like the Lord meets me in the pulpit. And there's times when I feel like I could fly up here um, because the Lord just meets me to accomplish his work. And so here he is, probably in the court of the women, Mary and Joseph walking up to obey the law, and he took him, Jesus 28, into his arms and blessed God. The way you bless God, and this is all over the Bible, is, it's, it's the idea of worshiping him. You, you don't say, God bless you to God. You know, like, I want to give a blessing. <laughs> you can't really impart anything to God, but when you bless God, it's like you're praising his name. And he blessed God and he said, Now, Lord... Thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace. I can now leave in shalom. According to thy word, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. Simeon took the baby from Mary. He was overwhelmed. Can you imagine this moment? He had been promised that he was going to see the Messiah before he died. And he was now experiencing that moment. He was looking into the eyes of his salvation. Interestingly enough, the baby's name was Jesus, named that day. Yahweh is salvation. And he says, my eyes have seen thy salvation. With the realization that he was holding in his arms the hope, the long-awaited hope of the world, he was holding his salvation in his hands. Now he says, I can die in peace. I've seen the Savior. Just as Simeon took Jesus to his heart, if you will, so let us take the promises of Christmas consolation and all the promises of God and salvation to refresh our hearts. The Latin Vulgate calls this the nunc dimittis. You can now dismiss from the Latin Vulgate translation. I can now depart in peace. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. For to depart and be with Christ. Death for the Christian is simply a departure. And that's what Simeon knew. It must have been tough for him to let that baby go. I don't know how long he held the baby. I don't know how long they had a stare-off. Have you ever had a stare-off with a little baby? It's a pretty cool thing. You just stare at him and make funny noises. It's a pretty cool thing. Keep them kind of far from you because they drool. They, there's like a faucet running in little babies. Have you noticed that? They have those drool cloths. Parents think it's normal. We're like, get that thing away from me. But anyway. But it must have been an awesome moment. And Simeon holds this child. He was holding in his, in his arms the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. Ephesians 2, 14 says Jesus is our peace. We're not gonna have peace until we meet him face to face, eye to eye. Have you met him? Do you know him like that? Do you spend time getting to know him better. He goes on to say, this is a little prophecy as we wind down. He says, which thou hast prepared, verse 31, in the presence of all people. See, this salvation is for all peoples, not just for the Jewish people. A light of revelation to the Gentiles, way back in, early in the book of Luke, the Gentiles come up. The glory of thy people Israel. Salvation in Christ is for all peoples. It's for you and me. The guy writing this, Luke, was a Gentile. Pretty good news for Luke, right? He seems to be the only New Testament writer, to our knowledge, that is not a Jew. 
And his father and mother were amazed. Can you imagine? They marveled at the things which were being said about him. They had gone through so much, but they were still being constantly amazed by what God had done in their lives. I know if we can continue to be in awe of what God does in our lives, we'll, we'll have a pretty good attitude in this life. They were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Joseph, his father, is there. Mary, his mother, they're amazed. And Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, all of a sudden, it's going to go from a moment of joy to a moment of soberness. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall. The Greek word is tosis here. It literally means the crash for the fall and rise of many in Israel. See the word rise? That's the word anastasis. It's the New Testament word for resurrection. This baby is going to cause many to crash and many to rise. How fitting is that? What you do with Christ will determine whether or not you are crushed or whether you rise in the resurrection. It all depends on whether or not he is your consolation. And he's assigned to be opposed. You know, maybe it's calmed down a little bit, but we have heard about all the Christmas controversies of the last five or ten years. People die. I don't know, should we say, can you say Christmas? Yeah, you can say Christmas. It's okay. And he's assigned to be opposed. Jesus has been opposed for 2,000 years. Why do you think people get so upset at the name of Jesus? You can talk about anything with certain people, but the moment the name Jesus comes up, look out, right? I don't want to talk about that. Why do you not want to talk about that? What's the big deal? I don't want to talk about it. Jesus stirs people. People have a sense that they have to do something with him. And a sword, Simeon says to Mary, will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts or thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. The image here of a sword striking Mary is a large sword. She would suffer much pain in watching his rejection Jesus, the New King James Study Bible says, is the litmus test for where people stand before God. He is a judge who will expose the thoughts of all people. I want you to hear that one more time. Jesus and people's reaction to Jesus is the litmus test for where people truly stand with God. 1 John 2, 23, for if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. You don't. Jesus is the litmus test. If your response to Jesus is curiosity, that's not a bad place to be. But if your response is animosity or hatred, then look out. You see, Simeon said, Mary, a sword is going to hit your heart. And she would stand there when he was crucified and watch him die. And from the cross, he would entrust her life to the apostle John. Now, I, I just want to read these last several verses, and I'm not going to really exegete them, but I do want to end on this high note. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage. I think some scholars believe that she was a widow for some 84 years. Then as a widow to the age of 84, different views on how, what the length is, but she had been widowed. And she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Two, two people, male and female, both 
committed to the Lord. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God, continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for Luke's account of the marvelous gospel and the early life of Christ. We see Joseph and Mary, two obedient people to God's word. We see Simeon and Anna, many people in the temple. We see many connecting ideas that point us to this one, this, this child who would grow to die on the cross and a sword would pierce him. Nails would be pierced into his hands and his feet. He would take the cat of nine tails. Um, he would die a brutal death for us, Lord. And a sword, metaphorically speaking, pierced his mom's soul. She knew from the very beginning of his life, maybe even not knowing fully what it all meant, but she knew that at some point it was going to be hard. And yet she had become the bondservant of the Lord. And Lord, as folks are here tonight, thank you for the Christian life. Thank you for the hope, the consolation that we have in Christ. May you console every soul tonight. May you bless them. May you encourage them as they walk with you, Lord. May you keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the, the one who brings us encouragement and strength. You're the God of encouragement. May you encourage the person who might be feeling a little weak and poured out tonight, with your head and heart bowed if you've not met Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, will receive that gift tonight. Just open your heart to him and say, Lord Jesus, I want to walk with you. I want to know you. I repent of my sin. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for your shed blood on the cross. Thank you for your resurrection from the dead. I want to follow you. Maybe you need to rededicate your life to the Lord. Maybe you have been walking in the flesh and not in the spirit and you want to get back. We, all, we have all been there. We all probably could repent of that tonight. But Lord, I pray that you would just minister blessings. Your living waters would flow over the precious saints that are here tonight, set apart unto God, saved by the finished work of Christ. Let us rejoice and be glad. Let us sing the songs of Christmas maybe with a deeper appreciation and fervor of all you've done for us and how much you have loved us. Christmas is really about your love for us and your love is better than life itself. So we just wanna say we love you tonight and I pray that you'll bless the Christmas season for each one here. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Would you stand?